Amen, amen. Isn't it great to be with the Lord today? Praise be to God. I'm so thankful you're here this morning joining with us on campus. Thank you for joining with us also online. We're going to enter a time of just uh, spending time in God's Word at this time. And before we do, let us pray and ask the Lord to bless it. Lord, we come before you uh, asking that you will reveal to us through your Spirit and through your Word uh, our deepest needs. And Lord, through that same word, through that same spirit, uh, Lord, you will reveal to us and prove to us that you are the only one who can meet those deepest needs. Lord, we praise you in advance of what you're going to do in this place, in the hearts of your people. Lord, for those who are gathered, who do not know you as personal Lord and Savior, we pray that today salvation would be on them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We have been walking through uh, Psalm 119, and we took a little break last week as we celebrated the Lord's Supper together, and I pray that that was a blessing for you and your family, but we're going to continue where we left off uh, two weeks ago in Psalm 119, so if you would open your Bibles to Psalm 119, we'll be looking at verses 81 through 88 this morning, and if you are joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat in front of you or underneath the seat that you're sitting in. There should be a blue Bible there. I would encourage you to take that Bible, open up to page 571, 571. I love this psalm, and the more that I've been able to study it and spend time with the Lord, it is growing more and more rich in why this particular psalm is so important, because uh, though it is 176 verses, the longest chapter in all the Bible, this chapter over and over again reminds us of the word of the Lord. And what we find uh, in this particular chapter is each, uh, each section, uh, there's 22 sections, eight verses each. The psalmist writes it in a, a poetic form. Uh, each section is uh, identified by a Hebrew letter of the Bible. And each verse in that stanza also begins with that same Hebrew letter. But before we look at uh, today's uh, stanza in the Hebrew language, Uh, I want to remind us of of where we've been, really, for uh, several weeks. Uh, The psalmist, though we don't know who exactly uh, wrote the psalm and what occasion it was, the psalmist is experiencing uh, constant and tremendous affliction and suffering. Uh, If we look at the stanzas that we've looked at before, just those Hebrew letters, uh, the Vav stanza, verse 41, beginning there, the psalmist is taunted. Uh, The Zane stanza, verse 49, beginning, the psalmist is ridiculed. In the Het stanza, verse 57, the psalmist is bound. The Tet stanza, beginning in verse 65, the psalmist is smeared with lies. And the Yod stanza, verse 73, uh, the psalmist is shamed. And so we have the psalmist in constant affliction, constant suffering, taunted, ridiculed, bound, smeared with lies and shame. And this morning, in our next stanza that we're going to look at, the psalmist's affliction and suffering continues to, to build up, to mount up. Really, this is the climax of that suffering, that affliction, and he's utterly exhausted. And we see this in uh, verses 81 through 88. Uh, the Hebrew letter that begins this particular stanza is Kaf. And you'll see on the right there, uh, all those letters, uh, begin, all those verses beginning with that same Letter. And if you look at that image in the back there, uh, we learned uh, two weeks ago that the Yod stanza represents kind of the hand of God. Uh, this particular stanza, uh, it pictures the palm of that hand. And if you kind of vision uh, the way that that letter is cuffed, 
uh, and that dot that's sitting in that palm, that cup, it's a reminder to us that, that the psalmist is coming before the Lord and he's empty and he needs the Lord to fill him. And that dot is what the Lord is going to fill him with uh, today. And so maybe you've come here uh, this morning or joined with us online and, and like the psalmist, uh, there's a place in you that is empty. Uh, I ask and I pray that the Lord will fill you today. The psalmist writes in verse 81 through 88, he says, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. And your steadfast love give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Again, in this particular part of the psalm, Psalm 119, uh, it's oftentimes referred to the midnight of the psalm because it shows us in, in true fashion uh, the darkness of what affliction and suffering oftentimes brings when we think about the physical toll and the mental, emotional, relational, and spiritual toll that affliction can have on us. And in the dark midnight of this psalm, the psalmist is going to teach us three amazing truths when it comes to our affliction and our response uh, to the Lord. And the first one is this, uh, that we need to admit uh, your need for the Lord. We need to admit your need for the Lord. Right in the middle of our passage, the psalmist uh, cries out in verse 86, these words, help me, help me. It's only one word in the Hebrew. Uh, the Hebrew word is azar. Azar, say that with me today. Azar, uh, no, you're struggling, you've been ridiculed, you've been pounced on, you've been hunted and harassed, and that's all I get? What is the help me here? Azar, azar, say it like you mean it. Azar, this place, this person, this psalmist is in a desperate situation, and how often do we allow the obstacle of pride to get in the way of us asking for the Lord's help? When I think about my own life, uh, I have noticed greatly over the years that my lack of asking others for help is usually a greater indicator of me asking the Lord for help. And I don't know if that's true about you, but if it is, be reminded that the psalmist is teaching us to have humble honesty before the Lord. He's not minimizing the situation at all in our passage today. In fact, he is being quite honest, and he says, Lord, I need you to help me. And the psalmist expresses his desperation for the Lord's help in three specific ways. We see the first two in verse 81 and verse 82 in the front part there. Verse 81, the psalmist says, my soul longs for your salvation. 
In the first part of verse 82, the psalmist says, My eyes long for your promise. Now think about the words that are expressed just in the first part of those two uh, verses there. The word soul represents the core of a person. So think about the makeup of who you truly are. Think about the physical aspect, the mental aspect, the emotional aspect, the relational aspect, the spiritual aspect. The word salvation speaks of a need for deliverance or a need for a rescue. The word eyes illustrates that he's seeking and he's searching for something. And that word promise is what he's seeking seeking for that promise speaks of the faithfulness of God and that word that's in both of those verses the word longs that word communicates weakness weariness an aching an exhaustion a collapsing an emptiness a failing being at the end of your rope being finished straining ahead crushed and able unable to go on and so far just in those two uh, pictures of the psalmist desperation Uh, He says, Lord, in the depths of who I am, in the places that nobody knows about, the places that are the most vulnerable to me, I am crushed, weak, and weary. I do not know how I can go on. Lord, I am seeking and I'm searching your faithfulness in my circumstances, but I'm tired because nothing seems to be changing. Lord, help me. I need you to rescue me. Then the third way the psalmist communicates his desperation is found in the first part of verse 83. He says, for I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. So let's think about this picture of a wineskin. And I actually have a picture for you, so we're going to look at that while I'm talking about it. These wineskins would have been made out of animal skins, and they would uh, be like a, a bottle that we, if we think about a bottle, uh, uh, it, they were meant to hold oftentimes water or, or wine. And these wineskins were perfectly fine, perfectly useful if, if they were, if there was an relaxed, uh, if they were like a balloon, if you will. So think about a balloon that's fresh, right? I mean, you can put air in it, you come back down, you put more air in it, but sometimes you get a balloon that's kind of uh, rotted out, right? I mean, it's just like stuck together. And so the picture here is, is the psalmist is saying, uh, I'm like an old wineskin that's been left up in smoke. And what would happen is, in these particular homes is they would hang the wineskins up uh, in the house uh, so that they would uh, dry out. But the, the issue was uh, you didn't want them to dry out too much. And so think about a home that is uh, using fire uh, to not only heat the home, but also to do a lot of the cooking. And that smoke would begin to rise up in the home and they would forget about them and they would be left uh, for days on end for a season, if you will. And what would happen to those wineskins because they were forgotten, because uh, the smoke was beginning to infiltrate the wineskin, it would be left uh, brittle and, and flaky and fragile. And essentially there would be, they would be useless and what's happening is uh, the psalmist is, is experiencing an extended season of affliction. And he says, I'm just like that wineskin. I'm fragile. In my mind, I, I am useless. I am, I'm spiritually dry. So in other words, the effects of grief and lack of sleep and hardship, they were visibly evident. It was taking a toll on his body. You think about King David for a moment. He experienced this as well. In Psalm 69, verse 3, he says, I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. And in a similar way, the the psalmist is crying out to the Lord, help me, help me, help me. Now, why? What's he experiencing? Well, he tells us in verse 85, he said, the insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. So the insolent here, again, are the prideful, those who are wicked, those who are not uh, living for uh, the Lord. And here they are. uh, They're creating these 
pitfalls. And so if you think about these pitfalls, it's, it's the idea of being hunted like a wild animal. And so uh, they're scheming, they're hunting, they're trying to trap uh, the psalmist. And, and what's one of the, the weapons that they are choosing to use? Well, the psalmist tells us in verse 86, uh, they persecute me with uh, falsehood. And so uh, these lies... And they're trying to take him down, right? They're trying to destroy him to the point where the scripture says in verse 87, they have almost made an end of me on earth. The psalmist says, they have so hounded me, so taunted me, so hunted me with their lies that it almost ended my life. You know, the reality is you and I can at times experience similar attacks like that as well. Uh, Sometimes those attacks uh, come from family, uh, coworkers, uh, even friends, uh, right? Uh, and it's those attacks that, uh, that are displayed to us uh, through uh, face-to-face conversations, or maybe it's seen on a social media post, or, or maybe it's a text message that you receive. Uh, sometimes the attack, and this is the, the passive-aggressive attack, is the attack of someone's inward thoughts about you, right? And so these attacks are real for the psalmist. And, and why, is the ca- why is this the case for the psalmist? Why are they attacking? Verse 85, it says, they do not live according to your law. In other words, they harden their hearts to the things of God. Now here's what's, uh, God's word is so amazing. God is far wiser than we are, right? He knows exactly what needs to be communicated to us. And what I love about God's word is in Exodus 21, uh, God gives tremendous instruction for the people of God to have personal responsibility and how they care and love for one another. And and the psalmist in Psalm 119 talks about pitfalls, right? These pits that are dug. Now think about the care that God has uh, imparted to us, that responsibility to care for our neighbors, right? And think about the language here of pitfalls. In Exodus 21, amazing passage, verse 33 and 34, the scripture says, when a man opens a pit, so when a man chooses to dig a hole, right? Or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of that pit, the one who dug the hole, shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. So think about this. God so wants to show the responsibility that we are to have for one another, that love and that care, that when we choose to dig a pit, for whatever the reason is, and something falls into it, in this case an ox, Who's responsible to make it right? Who's responsible to restore that? The person who dug the pit, right? And here what we find in Psalm 119 is the direct opposite of that, right? They're not trying to restore. They're not trying to do any of that stuff. All they're doing is doing what? They have relentless attack after attack. And why why is that a case again? Because they are not living according to the law of the Lord. God has given us the responsibility to care and love our neighbor. But when our hearts are hardened towards the Lord, the overflow of that hardness of heart will spill over to the people around us. And that's exactly what's happening in the psalmist's life. They're trying to assassinate his character with lies. Uh, King David, again, uh, knew this far far too well. In Psalm uh, 35, verse 7, he says, For without cause they hid their net for me, Without cause, they dug a pit for my life. And so twice, David says this amazing phrase, without cause. Now, it's important for us. We know David's life, right? In no way is he communicating here that he's claiming to be perfect or innocent. Far from it, right? Instead, David says, the attacks of my enemies have no justification. 
In other words, the, the, the attacks that they're bringing on, they're trying to end my life. It's not uh, justified. Uh, the point is, we will sin against others, right? How many of y'all agree with that? You will sin against others. And guess what? You will be sinned against. How many of y'all agree with that? Uh, there's a little louder uh, nod on that one, right? We want to acknowledge the faults of everybody else. But we will sin against others, and we will have others sin against us. The question is, how do you respond when that happens? Uh, is, is the posture of your heart uh, pride or humility? Right? That's at the end of the day. That's the question that's asked, and, and there's an answer. Uh, pride uh, says, I'm not going to seek forgiveness when I wrong somebody. Uh, pride says that I'm not going to grant forgiveness to someone who's wronged me. Uh, whereas humility, on the other hand, says, Lord, I have sinned against you, and I have sinned against others. Allow me an opportunity for restoration. Humility says, Lord, they have hurt me badly, but through your grace, I will forgive them. Doesn't mean I'm going to trust them. Doesn't mean the relationship is the same. But I choose to let them go. And notice, with the weight of the psalmist's circumstances, he, he just asks these poignant questions. He says in verse 82, he says, I ask, when will you comfort me? Verse 84, how long must your servant endure? Verse 84, uh, the second part, when will you judge those who persecute me? Now, verse 84 is interesting because this is the first time in Psalm 119 where there's not a direct connection uh, to God's word in a verse. It's almost like an expression of, of the desperation that the psalmist is experiencing. Uh, the psalmist is keeping it real, right? He's asking these questions. God, I have been waiting for a while for you to intervene, but your timetable and my timetable don't seem to be on the same page, right? How many of y'all have had that happen before? We're, we're not on the same page here. Lord, I have endured the attacks long enough. How many more days? I can't take it much more. Lord, help me. Again, David experienced this as well. Psalm, 16, uh, Psalm uh, chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. He says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? And so David uses the word trouble twice in these two verses. Lord, I am troubled, weak, dismayed, overwhelmed, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, relationally. I'm spent. How long is it going to continue? Lord, help me. Again, we see David's admission uh, for the need of the Lord in Psalm 13. Listen to Psalm 13, an amazing chapter. Verses 1 through 4. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Those verses, David says, how long? How long? How long? How long? God you seem so distant in my life. And the churning that is happening on the inside and the churning that is happening on the outside doesn't seem to stop. Please help me. You know, brothers and sisters, I would, I would love to be able to tell you today that you would not, in your lifetime, experience the desperation that the psalmist is experiencing. But, but I can't promise that. In fact, I'll do the direct opposite. You can, you can almost bank on it. That's why it's in the Bible, right? The Bible is teaching us 
what happens when affliction arises and not just arises for the day but for a long period of time and it's in those moments that we are to express we are to admit our need for the Lord is that where you are this morning are you truly in a place where you're willing to admit admit your need for the Lord you know, one of the things I love about this passage as well is, is you have this admission of need for the Lord, but then you have the psalmist questioning, right? Listen, those aren't contradictory, right? In fact, they go hand in hand. And for the psalmist, and my prayer for you and my prayer for myself is that the greater the questions are, with a greater need for the admittance of I need the Lord in my life, what will happen in your life, what will happen in my life is not a, a growing doubt of God, but a growing dependency on God. And that's what the psalmist is expressing to us today. So the psalmist uh, teaches us in our passage to admit our need for the Lord. Second, uh, the psalmist is going to teach us to commit our ways to the Lord. Commit our ways to the Lord. You know, the psalmist has made it perfectly clear that his soul is weak, Right? He's finished. He's ready to tap out. His eyes are failing. No light at the end of the tunnel, right? He's searching, but he's not finding. His life is dried up and frail, but in the middle of all that, there is a commitment to the ways of the Lord. Look at verse 81 again at the front part. My soul longs for your salvation. So the psalmist here is in deep desperation for deliverance and and rescue but not just any deliverance, not just any rescue will do. It has to be what? It has to be your deliverance. It has to be your rescue. The only deliverance and the only rescue that will satisfy the longings of his heart and his soul must come from the Lord. My soul, my strength is but finished, but I choose to seek my deliverance, my rescue from you. David talks about why this is so important in Psalm 3 verse 8. He says, salvation or deliverance or rescue uh, belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Do you believe and trust that your deliverance, your, your immediate and ultimate deliverance and rescue can only be found in the Lord? Do you believe that today? The psalmist expresses his commitment to the Lord in verse 82. We saw this again. Uh, My eyes long for your promise. So just like we saw previously for the psalmist, not just uh, any promise will do for rescue and deliverance. The psalmist is expressing the same thing again when he thinks about his, his eyes. He says, only the promises of God will deliver. Only the promises of God will be my rescue. Why is this significant? Because longing for the promises of God hasn't always been the case for God's people, right? You go back to Jeremiah's day in Lamentations chapter 4, verse 17. The scripture says, Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help, and our watching we watched for a nation which could not save. And so here you have the people of God. They're being harassed and attacked by the Babylonians. And instead of their eyes being focused on the promises of the Lord, they are drifting to the Egyptians, thinking that the Egyptians, if we just focus on them, if we just trust them, then they will rescue us. They will deliver us. But all of that watching, all of that straining, all of that looking to the Egyptians brought them nothing but vain. And the same is true of God's people today. You know, think about our world that we live in. I mean, everywhere you turn, every place that your eyes can fixate on, it's promising false promises. It's promising you false deliverance and false rescue 
And when we choose to fixate on those things, it's done in vain. It doesn't matter if it's work or hobbies or sex or drugs or alcohol or even religious activity. It doesn't work. The psalmist is desperate, but he's not despairing. He's longing for deliverance. And where is his hope? Verse 81, the scripture says, I hope in your word. His soul is spent, but he's waiting on the Lord. His life feels ruined, but he chooses to remember. Remember, he's like the wineskin who's, uh, who's in the smoke. But then he says in verse 83, Yet I have not forgotten your statues. And why is there such a commitment to the word of God, to the ways of God? Verse 86, he says, All your commandments are sure. The word sure means faithful, trustworthy, reliable. He says, though they tried to, to make an end to me, they almost made an end to me on the earth. He says in verse 87, but I, and that's an emphatic I, but I have what? I have not forsaken your precepts. With all that has happened to me, this season of affliction and suffering and hardship, I desire to honor the Lord. And what words of amazing grace. Verse 87 again, the, they almost made an end to me. If you have a Bible out right now, circle the word almost. They almost made an amenity. What a testimony to all of us in Christ today in the face of persecution, in the face of hardship, affliction, anxiety, depression, confusion, despair, disappointment, pain, and even evil. The scripture says almost. Almost. But yet God provides. It's God's gracious provision in the almost of life that bring about a deeper commitment to the ways of the Lord. The psalm, the psalmist here uh, is telling us and reminding us that the ways of the Lord are right and true. And when you look at the, the psalms in general, we see this testimony over and over again. Psalm 27 verse 14, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. Psalm 37 verses 7 through 9, be still or rest before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Man, it's a great reminder to us, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we must give up. We must let go of all of our unrighteous anger and wrath and worry towards those who do evil. Commit your ways to the Lord. Why? Because your ultimate blessing is not found in how you retaliate. Your ultimate blessing is humbly surrendering to the things and the ways of the Lord. Psalm 62, David preaches to his soul in the time of great affliction. Verses 5 through 8. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O oh people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Pause and think about who God is to his people. In the hardships of life, are you still committing your ways to the Lord? You know, when life gets hard, and it does, we have a tendency to justify our wandering, don't we? I mean, let's be honest. We justify our wandering. And yet, God's word is reminding us, commit your ways to the Lord. Don't drift. Don't drift. The third uh, 
teaching or lesson that we find from the psalmist in our passage is uh, that we need to rely on God's goodness to endure. We need to rely on God's goodness to endure. I love verse 88, how the psalmist closes this particular stanza. He says, in your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Man, what an incredible reminder that in the midst of suffering, affliction, and hardships of life, and even the thousand unanswered questions that we have, right? God in his wisdom gives us what we need the most. And what is it? His steadfast love. That's what verse 88 tells us. The light that shines bright and the midnight darkness is the steadfast love of the Lord. We consider again Job for a moment. We talked about Job. One day, pretty much lost everything. Possessions, his children, large part dignity, all those things. And then the thousands of unanswered questions and the weak counsel that he got from his friends and all those things. And here's what I love about that picture of Job, the real story of the life of Job. When you get to the New Testament and you want to get a great commentary, a great reason and purpose of understanding the life of Job, we get it in James chapter 5, verse 11. The scripture says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. And what is that purpose? How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So you get to the end of Job, Job 42. And all of that suffering and hardship and toil And what do you come away with? The testimony that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Even when darkness surrounds us, God will show himself in the end to be compassionate and merciful. That reminds us that no matter what the struggle was in the past or what the struggle is today or what that struggle may be in the future, God will prove to us time and time again that he's compassionate and merciful. Even when we don't see it, Even though we don't feel it, we can trust that he is compassionate and merciful. And it's based on the steadfast love of God that we are what? That we are promised that he will give us life. That idea of giving life has to do with reviving or sustaining or restoring. We see a beautiful picture of this in Psalm 71, verses 20 and 21. The scripture says, you have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. So the psalmist cries out to the Lord, uh, the one who is uh, in ultimate wisdom and provision of divine love, the one who has allowed the affliction to come into his life. That's what he says at the first part of verse 20, that that these troubles, these calamities that you have allowed to come into my life, you, the same one who has done that, will revive me again. You will comfort me. You will bless me. And our hope for endurance in the midst of affliction comes where? It comes from the Lord. 
Psalm 121, verses 1 through 2. The psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And this is a beautiful picture because the psalmist is going up to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem in order to worship the Lord. And as he is walking up to Jerusalem, he sees the hills around him. The very same hills that many are worshiping false gods. And what the psalmist declares is, when I look at the hills, you know what I see? I see the Lord's hill, God Almighty, who is my helper. You know, in all honesty and transparency, where do you truly find your hope and help today? Where does it come from? The foundation of your hope and the foundation of my hope is found on a hill, the hill of Calvary, where Jesus bled and died and rose again. That is the ultimate hill that we need to be focused on. Let that be the prayer of the church, the same prayer that Paul utters up for the churches in Rome. He says in Romans fifteen thirteen, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. You know, not only is it hard to admit that we have needs, it's probably even harder to receive needs, right? To receive the blessing of getting that need filled. And guess what? God wants to do both. God wants us to admit our need before him, and he also wants to supply the need that we have. Be encouraged today in the midst of affliction and suffering and hardship. I mean, you have a treasure inside of you in Christ that is priceless and valuable never will fade. It's the treasure of Christ in you that works in you, through you, and for you, right? And it's that treasure that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs not to us, but to God. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. So think about the vessel. Think about the clay pot. Think about the fragile clay pot, afflicted in every way, pressured on every side, perplexed, confused, uncertain, persecuted, relentlessly, hunted, struck down, on our back, overwhelmed. Those things are true, right? I mean, think about your life. Think about my life. Fragile, vulnerable susceptible to the tax, but yet the treasure that's inside of me and treasure that is inside of you because of the work of Christ, pressure on all sides but not crushed, confused but not driven to despair, relentlessly attacked but not forsaken by our Lord, overwhelmed but not destroyed. So relying on the goodness of God to endure the trials of life simply means we're relying on who? Christ himself. We're relying on the word of God. We're relying on the spirit of God who dwells in us. And it's that promise of goodness from God that allows us to live lives that are obedient to the gospel. The psalmist says, give me endurance that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Again, what a statement of faith in the Lord. Give me endurance. Why? So that I can do what? I can commit my life to the testimonies that come from your mouth. I am weak. I am broken. But Lord, every day, give me a chance. Give me an opportunity. Give me a desire. Give me the power to live for your glory. I don't want to quit. I don't want to give up. And as we go to our time of response, I want to pray a prayer over us 
that is found in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two, verses sixteen through seventeen. Paul says, "Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word." You hear the prayer, Lord, bring them home, comfort, bring them hope. Bring them endurance, so that what? So that they can live lives of obedience for the glory of God and the good of those around them. And that is my prayer. And I just want to encourage you, as the Lord has graciously impacted your heart and your mind and your life this morning, uh, the altar will be open for you. If you would love to come and pray.